welcome everybody to the Banyan Books In Conversation podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee, and I'm really delighted to be joined today by Dr. Robert Svoboda. Dr. Svoboda, namaste, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Namaste, thank you. Now, Dr. Svoboda had said he would be happy to do an invocation to start our discussion today, so I'll, I'll invite you to, to do that. Um. Vakratanda Mahakaya Surikoti Samaprabhan Nirvignam Kurume Devan Sarvakar Yeshu Sarvadam Om Ganana Antwa Ganapati Ganghavamahe Kavinkavinam Upamashavastamam Jeshtarajam Brahmanam Brahmanas Pataana Shanvanu Tibisi Dasadanam Mahaganapataye Namaha Jayaganesh. Jayaganesh, thank you very much. So I'll start by just making a few announcements. First off, I'd like to acknowledge that though there are people joining from around the world, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound is on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples. That includes the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Um, it's also Banyan Books and Sound's 50th anniversary year this year. So it's been Canada's healing and spiritual resource since 1970 an independent bookstore. And I encourage everybody to go to our website or visit the store. We've got full hours happening now, 11 to seven every day of the week. And if you want to order things online, go to banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Now, our guest today, Dr. Robert Svoboda, was born in Texas in 1953. In 1972, he graduated with a bachelor's of science in chemistry and a minor in French. In 1973, he traveled to Kenya and was initiated by the Pokot tribe. In India, in 1973 to 1980, he received his bachelor of Ayurvedic medicine and surgery from the University of Pune. In his final year, he won all but one of the university's awards for academic excellence in Ayurveda, including the Ram Narayan Sharma Gold Medal. He was also the first Westerner ever to graduate from a college of Ayurveda and be licensed to practice in India. During and after his formal training, he was tutored in Ayurveda, Yoga, Jyotish, Tantra, and other forms of classical Indian lore by his mentor, the Aghori Vimalananda a fascinating character. Vimalananda owned thoroughbred racehorses as well, and Dr. Svoboda served as his authorized racing agent at the Royal Western India Turf Club in Bombay and Pune between 1975 and 1985. Dr. Svoboda has served as adjunct faculty at the Ayurvedic Institute in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and at Bastyr University in Kenmore, Washington. He now travels extensively teaching in Tantra, Ayurveda, and Jyotish, and other aspects of the Indian system. And he spends on average three months in India. He is the author of 12 books, 
including Prakriti, your Ayurvedic constitution. The Agora series, which is on his experiences with his mentor Vibhulananda from 1975 to 1983. He's also got books on Jyotish and Vastu. His website is drsvoboda.com. Please welcome everyone, Dr. Robert Svoboda. If I may, I would like to start by asking you, um, all of these different, if we can call them maybe Vedic sciences or the Indian uh, system, all these different pieces, we've got Jyotisha, we've got Ayurveda, Tantra, Yoga, Vastu. Can you give us an overview of where all of these arise from and how they fit together? I know it's not a simple answer. It's not a simple answer. Um, it's a simpler answer in the context of the forms that they exist in now. Because the forms they exist in now are different from the forms they would have existed in during the Vedic era. So the Vedic era uh, started, who knows, 4,000, 5,000 years ago and continued until somewhere between 3,000 and 2,000 years ago. It started to change during that period. Um, and between about 2,500 and let's say 1,000 years ago, roughly, there was the classical era. And um, even the grammar of Sanskrit changed. So Sanskrit is the language of the Vedas. Sanskrit is the language of classical Indian uh, knowledge. But it's a substantially different uh, uh, language. Um, I, I studied classical Sanskrit. And when I was at the Ayurved College, the first year we studied um, portions of two epic poems by Kalidasa and we studied some of uh, a, a grammar text called the Lagusadanta Komedi and we studied the Niti Shataka, a hundred verses on um, uh, good governance and we studied the fifth tantra of the Pancha Tantra which is not tantra as people think about it nowadays, it's a, it's a book of fables and this, these are all things in classical Sanskrit. But if to, to actually read Vedic Sanskrit is something that is much different from classical Sanskrit and something that I find very difficult to do without a lot of help. Um, so not, but not only did the language change, the, uh, the Jyotish of the Vedas is, is Jyotish that was based on the moon, and in particular, the position of the moon in the 27, or in the Vedic times, 28 nakshatras, which are lunar constellations. They're in the same zodiac, there's only one zodiac, but instead of dividing it into 12 parts, it's divided into 27 or 28 parts. What is the so, difference between the 27 and 28? Well, there, there was one very small nakshatra called Abhijit that um, uh, originally the nakshatras were not 
all the same size. Originally, the nakshatras were regions of the sky, and it was not the the original Jyotish was not very much at all about calculating things. It was more about getting the the perception of how the light from the moon was interacting with this with the energy of space in that particular location and how these things were influencing human beings. Um, modern Jyotish is very much about calculation and it has to do with the ways that solar, the solar zodiac and the lunar zodiac interact with one another. So this Abhijit nakshatra was always a very small nakshatra. And when they started to standardize the numbers of nakshatras, they, using mathematics, discovered that it was a lot easier to standardize uh, because they were trying to standardize them in the context of the 12 equal sized solar constellations. And mathematically, it's easier to do that with 27 instead of with 28. Hmm. Um, and the reason why it's a difference between 27 and 28 is because the moon takes about 28 and a half days to go once through the zodiac. So um, it was, it was, it, 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 astrology is always an attempt to try to map a three-dimensional reality, or a four-dimensional reality down into two dimensions. Hmm. And um, there have been different ways of doing that. And now it's done by very uh, precise mathematical and observational measurements and calculations. So what happens is what, what the, the way the uh, ancient uh, Jyotishis did the in the classical world was they took the, they made the 12 uh, solar constellations of equal size and divided them into, each one of them into nine different parts that they called Navamshas. And they took the 20, they decided, they standardized 27 lunar constellations, which they called nakshatras, and they divided each one of them into four parts, which they called padas or charanas. And it transpires that one ninth of a solar constellation, a navamsh, is the same size as one quarter, one pada or one charana, of a nakshatra, three degrees and 20 minutes of arc. So then it was very easy to get the two systems to, um, to become superimposed on one another because now there was this unit that made it easy to, to, to translate between the two. Sort of bridge the gap between them. Yes, exactly. Okay. That was a bit of a tangent from the, the first question, I suppose, when I asked I, I, about the overall how, how all the Vedic sciences or that Indian, all these Indian systems fit together? Well, a bit of a tangent, but really more of an, more of a, um, an example. 
Right. No, I, I, I interrupted you and asked that other question too. So, um, the, uh, all, all science, uh, ancient or modern is, is trying to, it's, its purpose is to, you know, the word science means knowledge. Its purpose is to try to understand, to know what's going on in the world in which we're living. Yeah. And um, the Vedic period, during the time of the Vedas, um, there were some, um, there were some urban areas, but there were, the urbanization was very limited and patchy. And so people were much more connected to the reality of nature than they were after urbanization became serious. Mm -hmm. And urbanization became serious around 3,000 years ago. And it was at that time that deliberately the grammar changed, the Jyotish changed. In Ayurveda, in fact, uh, it says very specifically in the Charaka Samhita, which is the most well-known Ayurvedic text, right. that um, there was a giant conference in a forest at one time. And whether there was one conference or 10 conferences and whether it was the important thing it was, is, 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 you know, whether there were where it happened or it, the important thing is they emphasize it was in the forest. And the topic of um, uh, debate for the conference was what will we do about humans who were living in urban environments now? Because they understood that this is a giant change for humans in the past you had to be aligned with the with nature because you were living in nature. You had no alternative. But once you become urban, you start to spend the majority of your time around other people. And that changes the way your organism works. That changes the way that you, your, your relationship with the, the world of nature. And so, and, and it makes you less vital it, dis it disturbs the ability of your prana or your chi, your ki, your life force, disturbs the ability of the life force to circulate well in the organism because now you're being, you're, 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 it, it's, you know, human, humans are very social. They're always mirroring one another. We even have a, a million neurons in our brain called mirror neurons, whose job is to do nothing but mirror other human beings. Really? Yes. So we can, so, th but because it's, it's very important that we all be able to fit together in our little groups um, and feel like we're members of those groups. Are you familiar with uh, Dunbar's numbers? Sounds familiar, but I can't say I am, no. So um, much more research has been done on this, but an anthropologist named Dunbar um, decided to do some, uh, some experiments 
from the perspective of how many uh, among primates, how many how many individuals can actually fit into a an affinity group? And he discovered that it is very much based on uh, on the the uh, architecture of that species of the brain of that species. So for human beings, and you can look this up easily on the internet. You look up Dunbar's number. Yeah. Um, approximately 150 is the number of people that any individual can actually, practically speaking, know, meaning you know where they live, what they do, what their habits are, how you react to them, how they react to other people, and if much, much more than that, and it's just, it, you, you can't actually integrate them into this big constellation of the 150 people that are closest to you. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. So how does that, with all the social media and everything these days, I'm wondering how that's affecting our, is it diluting our capacity to relate on a deep level to others? Uh, well, but I think that's very much the point, that there's only, and out of this 150, there's only about 50 people, you know, there are 50 people that you relate to more than you relate to the other 100. Right. And out of that 50, there's like 15. And out of those 15, there's four or five or six who are the closest people to you. Um, and of course, what's happened, humans are hyper-social animals. That's the only way we've got to where we've been able to get because we cooperate, we collaborate to do things. Otherwise, we, our hearing is not really worth anything compared to other animals. Neither is our, our sight is kind of okay, but not, you know, not compared to an eagle. Um, our sense of smell, you compare it to a bear who can smell something 20 kilometers away, that's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> sense of taste, don't even talk about it. Um, so, the and do we have uh, you know claws do do we have no no we're we're helpless uh helpless primates except for the fact that we have learned how to collaborate mm -hmm. and by by virtue of collaboration that's why we've achieved all these things but that means we have to be very social. It means we always have to know who's part of our group and who's doing what and who and and how are things, you know, for especially for men, there's hierarchies, and especially for women, there's, you know, there's the oxytocin creating groups. And there's and all of these things are creating very complicated dynamics. That's all part of the human experience. Since uh things have become, you know, since the modern, modern world, let's say, let's just say post, um, post World War II, uh, there had already been radio, then there became, t and movies, then there became television, then there became, uh, then there started to, the tell everybody had a telephone, and then there were portable telephones, and then there was the internet, and progressively what this has done is encouraged people to socialize not with one another, but with images of one another, mm. which I grant you is what's happening right now. 
Yeah. And um, I have to, you know, honestly say that when I, uh, you know, four months ago, I didn't, I wasn't looking forward so much to um, trying to do things on Zoom because I couldn't exactly understand, you know, I, I have always relied on interacting with the audience and finding out how they respond to what I'm saying or not respond or whatever. Um, but I found that it, it hasn't been a, a too, too difficult an adjustment. And um, I think that probably has something to do with the fact that I continue to have interactions with actual human beings. And that has continued to permit me to maintain uh, uh, you know, a sense of how things are happening in the world and, and, and to be able to therefore, to be able to project a, uh, a what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say in a, in a relatively meaningful way. Right. Um, I think though that what has happened to a lot of people is that they have neglected, they get into the habit of being very social on social media, mm -hmm. but by in the context of doing so, they start to seriously neglect actually interacting with human beings in person, um, at, which is part of what being an actual human is. It's not just, it's not just communicating uh, by voice alone with the occasional, um, uh, with the occasional, uh, you know, uh, uh, photograph or uh, video clip or, you know, avatar or something. Right. It's actual physical interaction. So you're in the same space. You're, you're, you're able to perceive not just head movements, but, but all sorts of nonverbal body communication uh, and and smell and 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 the movement of air in the room and there are just so many things that are lost when you're limiting yourself to electronic social media communication and um, and I, I certainly think that there's a lot to be said for it. Why look, we're using it right now, but I think that it's it's ex extremely undesirable that a lot of people have gone so far into that world that they are neglecting the world of being actually human. Um, and of course, a lot of people uh, have come to the conclusion that um, uh, machines are a lot smarter than humans. And before too long, 20 or 30 or at the most 50 years, uh, machines are going to become so smart that they're just going to start running things and all the humans are just going to have to start um, uh, either, you know, uh, getting chipped and becoming part of this giant machine experience or they're going to lose out, um, which prospect. I think is a hmm? scary prospect. Well, yeah, it's impossible. And it's impossible because people don't understand how essential the physical body is for us to remain sane. 24 hours a day, we're getting information from our skin, from our ears, from our noses, even from our mouths. We're tasting what's going on inside us 24 hours a day. 
uh, fortunately for us, we can close our eyes. So at least part of the day, we don't have to continuously be taking in information from visual information from outside. But otherwise, we're taking in information all the time from outside. And it's reminding us that this is where we're positioned. And it's, it's, it's allowing us to continue to feel that we're oriented in a particular way. And that is what is permitting us to feel like we are actually functioning in a, in a world. Um, if you take awareness out of this form and you put it into some silicon server somewhere, um, there's nothing to keep it, there's nothing to keep it grounded in the earth element. And therefore there's, there's no reason for it to remain connected to what is actually real in reality. The earth element. Now you, you invoked Ganesha at the beginning. I understand. I did. He's mm -hmm. the Lord of the earth element. I, I kind yes. of have two, two questions. One would be, just an overview of what a deity is in general for our audience, and then the significance of Ganesha. And I know Ganesha Chaturthi is coming up. Is it on the 23rd? The Chaturthi, I believe, will be on the 23rd in India, but in North America, um, this, this in itself is something that, um, is a giant subject on its own. How do you determine which lunar day should be calculated according to which solar day? Okay. Because in India, days begin not at 12 midnight, but at sunrise. Uh -huh. So usually, and Chaturthi means the fourth day of the lunar fortnight. It could be the bright fortnight or the dark fortnight. For the Ganesh festival, it's the fourth day of the bright fortnight of the lunar month of Bhadrapada. And so you have to decide because it turns out that in North America, that fourth lunar day, it's called a Tithi, that fourth lunar day begins, it is going on at sunrise, but during the day, it changes to the fifth lunar day. Hmm. So if you, were, if you were going to observe something that was going to happen at night, let's say Vijayadashami, the day that Durga killed the buffalo demon and Rama killed Ravana, um, then you probably would want to have the... Um, or both those things happened at dusk. You probably would want to have that Deshami, the 10th lunar day happening at dusk, whether in fact it might have been, might not have been happening at dawn. Uh, but this, like so many things in uh, astrology and in Indian thought in general, um, this is a matter of great discussion. Um, in fact, there's an excellent book, or I think it's excellent, by um, the Indian uh, Nobel laureate in physics, whose name escapes me at this moment, hmm. Amartya Sen, called The Argumentative Indian. And it 
it's a it's an excellent overview of just all the different kinds of arguments and the way these arguments have been and how many arguments have continued for how many thousands of years and it's it's um because there's some things all of all of these sciences whether modern science or ancient science they're all attempts they're models of reality they're not actual we're, we're not speaking reality when we talk about it we're we're describing a representation of reality which is what our sense organs are doing too our sense organs are not telling us exactly what's out there our sense organs are creating an image of what's out there and that image is not giving us a clear perspective of what's out there that image is giving us a clear perspective of what we need to know about what's out there mm -hmm. uh, and that's why you know the electromagnetic spectrum goes on for uh depending on how you calculate it but probably for uh up to like uh 10 4 terahertz or something like that but we can hear only from maybe 20 to 20,000 hertz and we can see only uh for an even smaller fragment of that so there's there's it's it's a a tiny tiny amount of what we're sampling that is creating for us this giant image of our reality and of what we're taking in we take in 11 million bits of information per second Ooh. 10 10 million through the eyes alone 1 million through the skin uh 100,000 through the ears um 10,000 through the nose, 1,000 through the tongue. Um, but we can only cognitive, uh, you know, consciously process our cognitive faculties in the conscious mind can only pro process 50 bits per second. Wow. So that's five and a half orders of magnitude compression. So this is like the hyper super duper JPEG compression. Right. So we're only taking tiny samples and we're compressing that in a hyper duper way. And we're basic and we're saying, ha, huh, we know everything about what's going on based on this teeny tiny fraction of actually what we know, which is almost nothing. So right. it's, it's good to remember that we know very little and what we know is a projection of our, of what has worked, what has been evolved over the past, I think, you know, roughly 150 million years of uh, animal organisms developing sense organs. So we've been we've been we've been working on creating these these models, these projections of how we believe reality to be that work fairly well. We've been developing these for 150 years, 150 million years, but they're not real. They're still projections. They're still, they're still um, anticipations. Right. You're, you're really touching on, there's just so many forces at play that we're not even aware of affecting our decisions and the events that unfold in our lives. Um, I wanted to ask you about karma and, and the underlying teaching around it, but also 
how it influences us through the science of Jyotisha. So I think it's called Prarabdha karma. Is that the correct term? The, the karma of this birth or? Prarabdha. Uh-huh. Prarabdha. And, and that, and what that, that, uh, it comes from a, uh, it comes from a word that means, uh, to begin Prarabdha. So it's the beginning. It's the, it's the karmas that have come together that it was time for you as an organism to experience. And they have positioned you in the right place at the right moment to take on a form in an environment in which you will be able to experience the results of karmas that you quite possibly have performed quite a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, you know, we, we say in Jyotish that everyone has a big, big, big pile of karmas, and that pile is called your sanchitta karma. And mm-hmm. sanchitta means literally heaped up. So you have all these karmas heaped up. And some of them, they're all maturing, just like a fruit is ripening. Mm -hmm. And at the time that the fruit is ripe, that's the time that that moment for you to experience that result happens. So according to how many fruits have ripened at what point, that will help to determine exactly where you're going to be born, who you're going to meet, how you're going to interact with uh, those people and how and when you're going to to die. And so it's when a person is born, the moment of their birth happens at a mo- uh, uh, the, the, at the instant of their birth, the various grahas, so that word graha is used to to, to take together the, the two luminaries, the sun and the moon, the five visible planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, and the two nodes of the moon, uh, Rahu and Ketu, the places in the sky where um, eclipses take place. So these nine, uh, these nine grahas, and they're called grahas because that word graha means to grab hold of, to grip, to grasp, to seize hold of. Like a so, in, the, in the yama. Yes. So a parigraha means do not grab hold of things. Uh-huh. Whereas graha means it is going to grab hold of you. Hmm. So, and it is going to grab hold of you, not because it is up in the sky plotting, <laughs> I'm going to grab hold of this person. <laughs> its job is simply to possess anyone who, who, who has certain karmas and make them behave in a particular way. So they are there waiting to possess people. And when you look at a horoscope, you have a reasonable opportunity to understand how people are going to be possessed by certain grahas at certain times in certain ways. So 
One thing that I find uh, very interesting, of course, is that uh, the, the grahas are all archetypal figures. And you had asked earlier about what is a deity. Mm-hmm. Um, and deities are also, they're, they're archetypal figures. Um, someone like Ganesh, for example, um, before he took on his current um, status as being the, the lord of obstacle removing, um, he was often regarded as the lord of obstacle creation. Mm-hmm. And there are still some countries in which a Ganesh-like figure appears in which um, he is more known for removing obstacles than for getting rid of them. So, Sorry, more known for for, um, creating creating obstacles, sorry. Creating obstacles instead of getting rid of them. Right, okay. So... um, Ganesh represents an archetypal force. And whatever that force may may be, the fact is that the archetypal world is very different from this world. And humans are being influenced by it. The, The grahas live in the archetypal world. We're being influenced by this, but just because we're influenced by it, doesn't mean that we can necessarily perceive it directly any more than we can perceive even the universe around us directly. We're still getting a, a representation of it. So these deities are all representations of what's going on in the archetypal world. And right. it just so happens that these representations are often able to interact with humans. Um, I personally like to think of it as a placenta, you know, and a a placenta is made out of two parts that are, one part is created from the mother, from her endometrium. One part of it is created from the fetus, but they don't ever actually join together. They're very close. Things can be transferred from one uh, blood uh, stream into the other bloodstream but they're kept separate. And that's sort of what's happening here. There's this archetypal reality that is manifesting itself in the uh, human reality. And there's human reality that is focusing itself onto the archetypal reality. And they're very close to one another. They're in intimate contact, but they're not actually the same thing. They're not actually <clears throat> exactly, precisely connected to one another. So, so, can I ask on that? So I know the the worship of a personal deity is meant to, the languaging I've heard around it is we we eventually join with that deity and that deity carries us to the infinite. So that that joining is not a literal joining, but a more of a carrying. Well, if if suppose we think of ourselves as suppose i think of myself as a human being mm. what is a human being after all a human being is a combination of a human body and this human body has been evolved 
over, well, evolution started uh, billions of years ago. And so this is, it, it, there is a continuous process, ongoing chain of uh, connections from parent to child to parent to child that has been happening over tens of thousands of generations that has brought the human, uh, the, the human uh, species to this place where it is. And this human species is enlivened by what um, is called in um, Sanskrit a jiva. A jiva means an individual spirit or soul. And uh, there has been a long argument since, by long I mean since millennia, mm -hmm. as to which whether there actually are really individual souls and how individual are they and how permanent are they and so on. But besides that, besides all that, there is an individual for the per period of time the person is alive, there is a fragment of the supreme reality of awareness. And there is a complicated structure that we call a personality that allows us to connect to the outside world, allows us to connect to the supreme reality, but in the middle of which here we are creating images of the outside world and images of the supreme reality. So the personality is basically a bunch of images, a machine for generating images, including self-image. Uh, but we are, we're, and we're, but we're basically the placenta itself. We're sandwiched in between these two different realities and we're trying to express our personal truth of these realities in our in our lives. So let's suppose that um, you have realized that um, what is really important is to be able to open yourself as fully as possible to that supreme reality, whatever the absolute nature of that may be, which you're only going to know once you actually get there. So you open yourself, you're trying to open yourself to that supreme reality. And as my mentor, Bimalananda used to say, uh, you know, to do that, your choices are, you can try to connect to it directly, but because you're this personality that has all these images and projections and, uh, and sense perceptions and all of these different, all of these different reflections of conceptions of what you believe reality to be, um, it may, it's likely to be very difficult for you to get rid of all of that, uh, according to the Vedic nati, nati, it is not this, it is not this, throw out everything that is not supreme reality and you get to the supreme reality. Mm -hmm. It is in fact not so, not so easy to do, especially nowadays, because there, there are so many images and there's so many, so many people trying to grab our attention and keep us down here. So he said, it's much better that what you should do is you should take one face of the Supreme and, and different cultures have created many different faces of the Supreme. India has created many, many faces of the Supreme. But to create those faces, 
to take out of those created faces to take one, you could create your own face, but the point is, if you take a face that has already been created and that people have been, been worshiping already, there is already some, that face has already been well created, there's already momentum for it to be activated, and there is already, there, there is already the potential for it to be uh, prepared to act as a method by which you can actually make some spiritual progress. So, um, the, as Vimalananda explained it to me, the idea is that what you do is by focusing on, and this is a, this is a tantric, um, a tantric approach also. Uh, the tantric approach is that um, they, they sometimes, and when I say tantric, I mean, it's very difficult to define tantra at all, but one aspect of tantra is what's sometimes called rasa vidya, which means alchemy. But it's the understanding of all the different rasas in the world, meaning all the different substances, including particularly substances that can have a strong effect on a human being, including number one substances, mercury, metallic mercury, mm -hmm. and how it's prepared. It's called rasa. But rasa also means the tastes in the mouth, and rasa also means emotions. So all of these things have to be properly aligned together because all of us have <clears throat> lots of different emotions. We have lots of different tastes. And the tantric idea has always been that you go from many different rasas to one rasa. Mm. And whatever that one rasa may be, one emotion, one way of interacting with reality. And then you follow that one way and to get to the parama rasa, the supreme reality. So that one rasa, for example, could be uh, the rama rasa. Suppose you're a devotee of the Ramayana and, um, and you're a devotee of rama. So that rama will have certain flavor to him. And if you align yourself completely that, with that flavor, eventually, said Vimalananda, in your subtle body, you will create an image of Rama that will become real and perceptible to you. And that will still be an image, but that will be an image you have created of that reality. And then from there, you can proceed to use that image to act as a, um, a, 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 a portal or a tunnel into that supreme reality and then get to the reality from there wow okay that clarifies it a lot thank you um you you mentioned vimalananda and um i'm just seeing it's actually uh we're down to 15 minutes left just now i'll ask you one more question and then we'll open it up to the audience this is flown by really fast time does fly it does uh, one thing I really wanted to ask you uh, about Vimalananda was he really focused on, now correct my pronunciation, Ranaanubandhanas? Uh-huh, Ranaanubandhana. Uh -huh. Ranaanubandhanas. Can you uh, illuminate us a little bit on these karmic debts? Um, well, a debt is a debt. I borrow some money from you, you borrow some money from me. 
that's a debt. Um, two people are interacting with one another. And it's very likely that if they're interacting for any length of time, one does a little more for the other in this way, the other does a little more for the other in that way. So it starts to be not just very simple, I appear here, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not any longer a simple transaction. I show up, I would like to buy a banana, I hand you some money, I take the banana and everything, that's the end of that. It is often a situation where I owe you uh, five bananas, uh, two uh, elevators and one vacuum cleaner and you owe me three refrigerators <laughs> Uh, for rocking chairs and 150 avocado trees. And I may not know this, and you may not know this, but the, the grahas will arrange things so that these different items will be transferred <clears throat> so that, so the anubandana part means a binding. So if I, you know, when I owe you something, that's a bond between me and you. When you owe me something, that's a bond between you and me. That means that karma has to be paid back at some point. The more connections that are there, the more bonds that are there, the stronger the binding between us. So Rananubandarami is a situation where there is binding. The stronger the binding, the stronger the Rananubandana. So, um, and Vimalananda pointed out that, you know, really knowing Rananubandana is a very difficult thing to do. So it, that's why in general, the, um, uh, you know, all the great spiritual people over a long time have said that it's, it is whenever possible, good to be, um, to be generous, good to be helpful, good to be kind, good to not uh, not ask for things, but rather be willing to give things. Uh, sometimes it's appropriate to, if somebody strongly wants to give something to you to receive it, sometimes it's not appropriate. So according to, according to how a particular pattern of karmic interaction has happened between you and some other person, um, that's going to, that's going to have, of course, a <clears throat> strong influence on how your relationship with that person plays out in this lifetime because various karmas are going to be trying to come through you towards that person and through that person towards you. Um, and it's always good to remember, and he uh, iterated and reiterated this, and I regularly remind myself of this, it's always good to remember that everything that happens to you are your karmas coming back to you. They may sometimes come through one person, they may sometimes come through other persons, but those people are simply vehicles through which those karmas are coming back to you. So please do not blame other people. It's very easy and I find myself trying to do this all the time. Something, you know, something is not to my liking and often, not always thank God, but often I think of myself as 
so-and-so, you know, this is so-and-so's fault when I should be thinking, whoever this may have come through, these are my karmas coming back to me. And if I remain calm, I will get through this. And then that karma will be taken care of because of course, part of the problem with karma is some karma comes at you and then you react against it. And that creates a new karma. And of course, if you really want to get away from this whole business of karma, then it's very important to be able to react as little as possible because that's what karma is, action and reaction. Well, thank you very much. Um, okay, so now we've got some time for, for audience questions. Please, everybody, I see there's a bunch of stuff in the chat. Uh, I'm gonna start with the Q&A section and if you wrote your question in the chat, please put it over into the, into the Q&A section. Here's a, here's a great question, the first one from Osea. And I think this is, I've met a few people that um, have had this challenge. She says, uh, or sorry, he or she says, do you have any general advice for individuals dealing with a difficult Kundalini experience? It is a good question. And, um, and the reason I hesitate is because um, I have had challenged myself with that. And, um, and some of the implications of what happened to me when I was 16 um, have still, even to this day at age 67, still been influencing me to some degree. So uh, I don't want that to make anybody feel depressed. It's just, and, but I, I mean, on the other hand, I am here, I am still, I'm sitting here, I'm functional. So it's like, you know, it's not like things are terrible. Um, but it is important to realize that this is not, it doesn't go away completely. It's something that you have to live with, number one. Number two, kundalini and ahankar, your ego, these are, it's the same energy moving in different directions. When it's moving in the direction of being your ego, the thing that identifies you, that, that, that defines who you are, um, it is focused on your physical body, your, uh, your uh, ancestry, your uh, family, blood family and, and otherwise, uh, your culture and all the other things that are part of this reality. When it becomes kundalini, it is directed in the direction of the supreme reality. If it goes directly back to the supreme reality, um, then of course it will not be identifying with you at all and that will be the end of you. But your reptile brain, and remember this is one of the reasons they call Kundalini a reptile because she is a reptile brain uh, manifestation, your reptile brain, on the one hand, wants very much to go back to the supreme reality, but on the other hand, wants very much to stay alive. So uh, that's where the challenge comes. So it is extremely, in my, in my opinion, it's extremely important to always have one thing that you can 
turn your attention to at, at any time that you need to, that that is that, that one thing that, uh, well, as Mr. Mantri, uh, my Jyotish mentor used to say, your Ishta Devata, your personal deity, is that, that last face that you would see when you were going drowning and going down for the last time. So whatever that may be in you, and it, it doesn't matter what people say it should be, it's like, what is that, what is that manifestation of reality that is most precious to you? And it may take some time for you to figure that out, but whatever it may be, find out what that is and grab hold of it. And you may have to, for some time, grab hold of it with every breath. And you may have to, for some time, grab hold of it with every in-breath and with every out-breath. But the most important <clears throat> thing to do is grab hold of that and say, from now on, you are organizing everything in my existence, because I can't figure out what, to, I'm too confused here. I want to be aligned with you, whoever you are, and you, or I'm, I'm opening myself so you can come in and possess me since my own personality is now, it's, it's, it's not functioning adequately for this purpose. You come down and possess me and put my personality back together well enough so that I will be able to function to do what I need to do in this world for the duration of this lifetime. And then please take me in your direction when I go. And that way, um, good things will have happened overall. That's really helpful. I know, I know a few people who've had difficult experiences and I think that will be a benefit to anybody who has. Thank you. Um, the next question is from Michael. And he asks, what does Dr. Svoboda see the future of Ayurveda in North America being? Well, that's a good question. I mean, at the moment, the future of Ayurveda uh, is, on the one hand, there's a small, as is common probably anywhere, there's a small group of people who are trying to study it in great detail and a much larger group of people who are thinking of it in terms of either spa treatments or uh, find out what your dosha is and eat according to your dosha. And neither one of those things are bad. It's just that neither one of those things is, um, is, an, is a, uh, a full, full thickness representation of what Ayurveda really, really is. So um, my expectation is that it's going to be something very similar to that, that uh, people are going to become more familiar with Ayurveda, find out that it's very useful. It's good to know whether you're chiefly Vata is working in you or Pitta or Kapha, but hopefully go a little further and understand that, uh, that Vata represents um, dryness and coldness and, 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 and instability and uh, disconnection from the body in many ways. And of course, that's part of what's going on with um, spending too much time online. It's, it's your, 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 your head 
becomes separated from the rest of you. And of course, a separated head in Jyotish is what we call Rahu. So we're living in a world of where possibly billions of people have become extremely possessed by Rahu, have become incarnations of Rahu. And that's why we're seeing all the bizarre things happening everywhere all the time, because Rahu is disconnected from this terrestrial reality. So um, I th my hope is that Ayurveda is going to encourage people to come back, reconnect to the terrestrial reality, realize that we have all come from nature, we need to preserve nature, we need to live as closely as possible to nature, and we need to take advantage of all this knowledge that has been collected uh, over the many centuries, and we need to do what we can to add to this knowledge uh, by, uh, by testing out our own herbs and foods and so on, and finding what their qualities are and being able to advise people how to employ them in, uh, in ways that will produce uh, healthy reactions in themselves and others. Thank you. Yeah, you mentioned Rahu and uh, maybe I'll say, I have another question, I'll save it for the end. I think we have time for, it's just two o'clock now. Do you have time for one more question, Dr. Stoller? Sure. Okay. Um, this is an interesting one um, and it, it ties in with the question I wanted to ask and you mentioned Rahu and the current state of the world. This question comes from user named Keen Machine. And they ask, can you please share your thoughts on the current date of the Yugas? Um, there's more to that question, but I think that's probably. Well, yes, uh, the, the, and, and the, actually somebody asked me this question a couple of weeks ago in the context of uh, uh, Yogananda's uh, Guru Sri Yukteswara. And That's another part of this question here it refers yeah. to Sri Yukteswar's calculation. So, um, it, it, you know, all of this, all of the, even, even the yugas and so on, these are all models of reality. Um, and uh, I certainly respect Sri Yukteswar's opinion, um, though I have to say that Personally, my personal feeling is that um, I kind of like that date that was somebody calculated a few decades ago, that roughly 3100 BC would be the beginning of Kali Yuga, which was approximately the time that Krishna died. Supposedly, that was the beginning of Kali Yuga. Um, and it is quite possible that we're in Satya Yuga. But to be honest, I, at least at the moment, I don't see a whole lot that suggests that we are in anything other than Kali Yuga. My hope is <clears throat> that Kali Yuga is going to start moving uh, in the right direction. But it is also very true that um, it's not like as as with the other as with what are called in uh, Jyotish dashas, which are way, uh, uh, periods in which certain grahas uh, uh, are most influential in your life. It's let's say that a person is in the Venus dasha, in the Vimshotri system. The Venus dasha goes on for twenty years. It's not meaningful to say 
this is, you're going to have the same experience all 20 years because that's not what's going to happen. So it may be in the Venus Desha, but it will be Venus in the, in, in Venus overall, there will be a sub period of Venus. And in the Venus, Venus period, there will be a sub period of Venus, but there will also be sub periods of sun, moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Rahu, K2, um, and uh, Saturn. And so the, even in the yugas, there will be an overall yuga, whatever that overall big yuga may be, there will be a sub-yuga, there will be a sub-sub-yuga, there will be a sub-sub-sub-yuga. So even if, we're, even if we're able to think about what may be happening over this past 2,000 years or so, um, or 3,000 years, um, it, 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 may, it may be that, in fact, the yugas are as small as Sri Yukteswara is talking about. It's quite possible. On the other hand, it may just be that the yugas are quite large and we are only seeing a, a certain sub-sub periods happening um, that uh, are going to, going to shift into something even different later on. So um, I, don't, uh, I don't personally consider myself to be an expert on the yugas. All I would like to say is it is my hope that whatever yuga we're in right now happens to start moving in a better direction pretty soon. Thank you. Um, maybe we can close with just any comments you might have on the present state of things in the world. Anybody listening to the recording of this today's August 16th, 2020. Do you have any comments uh, to leave people with on the present state of the world and what we can do? Well, uh, I, I believe, you know, it's my, it is, it, it certainly is my personal experience that um, on, while on the one hand, this pandemic has been unfortunate in many ways, there's so many ways that it's been fortunate. Uh, for one thing, it has not, it has not been the Black Death. It has not killed 25% of the population. If it had been an Ebola pandemic, 90% of people would be, that would be the end of civilization, what period. So I think nature is being very kind to us. Nature has made everybody slow down and reevaluate what they're doing. And, um, I've, I found it amusing while you were, uh, you know, uh, reading over my bio and, uh, you know, mentioning that I travel around the world and spend several months of the year in India. Well, at the moment, I can't go to oh, India. Right. <laughs> and practically speaking, I can't go, I can't even go to Canada uh, right. because um, I live in a country where, uh, for whatever reason, and I certainly feel free to blame the, um, the top leadership of the country, uh, the, there is, um, you know, 4% of the world population and 25% of the world cases. That seems uh, pretty, um, to me at least, that says, that says something. It says something different from what, let's say, QAnon is saying to people, but it says something to me. And what it says to me is we've gone far, far away from 
as a species from being connected to mother nature. And mother nature has been kind enough to give us a time out and to allow us to reevaluate whether we really want to continue going in this direction or we would, whether we would like to get back to behaving more like we should be behaving because we as a species have our own karmas and runanubandhanas. And we've been a very naughty species. And all of those karmas, if we don't start changing our ways, are going to come home to roost. And that's going to be a very, very unpleasant experience for us. Uh, and people, you know, they, they get all terrified about whether it's going to be the end of life on Earth. Absolutely will not be the end of life on Earth. Many species are likely to perish, unfortunately, thanks to uh, the human being. It's not going to be the end, the worst um, uh, mass extinction that happened at the Permian-Triassic boundary. Killed 95% of all species, 95, 90% of all genera, and like 70% of all families. Of, of so, I mean, it was a it slaughtered everything and it took possibly 10 million years to come back from that. But that was 250 million years ago and look where we are now. So life on earth is gonna continue. Life on earth will absolutely continue. Humans may or may not survive. So as humans, I think we all need to respect the fact that we have been given a human rebirth. We have been offered in this, species an opportunity to change to 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 change the direction that we as a species have been going to to stop doing some of the bad things as a species we've been doing to start doing some better things and to to do what we can to repair our relationship with Mother Nature, and everybody can do that. Everybody can start doing that just by every time you're outside, just appreciating, being thankful to the fact that you have air, you have water, you are living in a place where it is not too cold and it's not too hot, and it is, it is, it is possible to be alive. Just being grateful is a tremendous move in the right direction, and when you do that, you're spending less time focused on um, the screen, which is not reality. Being in nature, that is reality. Beautiful. Dr. Svoboda, thank you so much for joining us. Really Ross, very much nice. Gra to gratitude to you. Yeah. And just a reminder to everybody, you can find our podcast anywhere that podcasts are cast. And you just search for Banyan Books in Conversation podcast. Much love to everybody. Thank you, Dr. Svoboda. Namaste. Namaste. You have been listening to In Conversation podcast with Banyan Books and Sound.